Genesis 22. The um, last thing we studied of substance was verse 6, where he took the fire and the knife and the wood. We talked about the, the wood being the cross, the knife being the word, and the fire is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But let, let, and that's then last week we ended up, or last Wednesday we ended up with the, um, not studying anything, so. I did not keep that. Okay. Would you read, let's, let's go ahead and see it again. Read 22, 1 to 14. Can you tell me what chapter I read? Genesis 22. Okay. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning, and saddled his ass, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and claimed the wood for the burnt offering, and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes, and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. <coughs> and Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son. God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt, burnt offering. So they went both of them together. And they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there, and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. <coughs> Abraham stretched forth his hand, and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven, and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind <coughs> him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Okay. We got through verse 6. Verse 7 Isaac is in his, uh, uh, he's, he's in his early 30s. Well, that's about all we know. We can't know exactly. We know that, that uh, Sarah was 137 when she died. And we know that this is just a little bit before that, two, a few years before that. So I, I, I believe he probably was 33, the same as Christ, because he's prefigured all of Christ. But I want you to visualize, if you, a moment... Um, the pathos that would have occurred in Abraham. He, he's known for three days 
So Abraham, Isaac has been dead in Abraham's mind for three days. And the son is simply being obedient to the father, not having any idea what's about to happen. And, and then in verse 7 he said, My father, said, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Can you imagine what Abraham's response must have been? I mean, the feelings that that would produce. And it's, um, I've told you about what the Talmud says about the, the conversations about Samael, the demon, coming and disguising himself in the shape of an old man and saying, uh, you know, can a loving God require this sacrifice? Where is the, if, if God is love and justice and mercy, how can he possibly require you to kill your son, the child of the promise? And that's what everybody, every time we talk about the cross to the world, they'll always respond to you with the idea, how can a loving God require that? And it's never changed. Well, in verse 8, this is the first prophecy of Abraham as a prophet. Remember the, remember the process that always occurs in a body, first apostle, then prophet, then evangelist, then pastor, teacher? Well, that process isn't five different people. It's one person, starting out as the apostle, then becoming the prophet, then becoming the pastor, teacher, I mean the evangelist and then the pastor, teacher. That's the process that's inexorable as a body of believers starts. It's not five different people. Or so all these people that say they're an evangelist, or you know that they're an apostle, or they're a prophet, or they're something. It's just you know garbage. It's just man's identity trying to place labels on a process that's required. There first has to be a dying seed symbolized by Abraham, and then as he in his obedience, as the testing continues then he has to even give up the promise. At that point he becomes the prophet. And then he begins to teach pastor. I mean, I mean evangelist. I mean, there, has to be, there has to be people. And then that, the, the pastor-teacher role comes into play. And you'll see that repeated over and over and over in the scriptures. But he spoke prophetically here of God's lamb and of the crucifixion. God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they both went. So they went, both of them, together. Well, let me, let me, this is the seventh consecration of Abraham. And it's a seven, it, 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 always seven is the complete mystical number. Now Abraham is ready. And there are seven things that must occur in your life that are symbolized by the seven consecrations that happened to Abraham. The first was to leave his land. The second was to leave his family. The third was to follow only God. The fourth was to separate from Lot, which was sustenance or substance or 
lot symbolized riches, possessions. Then to give up the plans for Ishmael. That's symbolized in you. you. You think when this process first begins that all of the God stuff is related to you. Well, you, you, you as an individual are after the natural or as Ishmael. And so you find out none of this stuff has anything to do with you. Then you cast out the bondwoman and her son. You divorce. The bondwoman is symbolized by the Jerusalem of the natural, i.e. wherever you're given law or rules. That's the bondwoman. And her son or her offspring is you off as the natural. You cast all that out. And then finally you offer up Isaac. And that means that you don't put your ideas about God's stuff on the promise. You have the mind of Christ. Though he were in the form of God, yet he thought it not something to be grasped, to be equal with God. But he emptied himself and made himself of no reputation. Well, that's the symbolism of what happened here. The promise, Isaac is the child of the promise, but Abraham had to offer him up. So you can't, and this is where, I mean, most religion never gets past the first one, which is to leave the land. And very few ever get past leave your kindred. But almost none ever come to the understanding of the seventh, which is to offer up the promise, which now we can begin to understand the mind of Christ. So first you must leave your land, then you leave your kindred, and you then come to the point where you follow God only, then you separate from your riches or your possessions. Now that includes ideas, identity, opinions, value systems. You give up plans for Ishmael, which is you after the flesh. And you finally cast out Hagar and Ishmael, or your Jerusalem of the flesh, and all of the natural. And then you offer up Isaac. You understand? I'm, I'm, no, I feel a little fuzzy on offering up Isaac. Relinquishing the promise? Relinquishing control of the promise. Now we can understand what it means to abandon yourself, to deny yourself. Go to Philippians, chapter 2. Five through uh, eight. The 
this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Robbery there just means something to be grasped. But made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Okay, he became obedient unto death. That's why the world can't possibly understand what it means to deny yourself or to pick up your cross. They will always try the follow me stuff. And so to look on Christ as a, a role model or somebody you imitate, and unconsciously even you who have heard the message of the cross all these years still think in terms of doing. What can I do? please Jesus or to please God or to please myself or it's all a subtlety of trying to keep self alive of, of coming to the of, of, of coming away from the, 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 the position of abandonment of self and the picking up of the cross being obedient unto death obedient to what obedient to the complete act of faith that if God isn't in you you will die. If he isn't the empowerment, you will die. Now, it's a costly, costly road to get to that point. You know what it means to take the name of the Lord, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who taketh his name in vain. It doesn't mean don't swear, as we've all know. And and one of the obvious things is it doesn't it, it doesn't mean you, you don't want to say the Ole Anthony Evangelistic Association. I mean that's the obvious taking the Lord in vain. But it's to never put God's name on something that's time dependent in your life, because vanity in the Scripture means futility. Now. Something that is futile, something that is valueless, out of time. You, you understand? So you think you're going to put God's name on all kinds of activity of the flesh because you're still trying to keep Ishmael alive. And you can make it sound real religious and real spiritual. God told me we're going to win the world for Christ. Christ doesn't need the world. Christ wants obedience. God told me we're going to do this or that. No, he didn't. Now, let's, let's look at um, another dimension of this thing, what it means to have the mind of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4. <coughs> First of all, you have to understand that Christ and, and the Father are only interested in the things that where he can say to you, you are they that have continued with me in my temptation. What religion, what you do automatically is you, 
you put on your temptation, i.e. the temptation of Ishmael, and you make it the temptation of God. That isn't even the first grade. That isn't even remedial Christianity. The process cannot begin from God's standpoint until you have abandoned yourself, take no thought for tomorrow, then you continue with him in his temptation. Otherwise, it's the temptation of man and it's meaningless. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Okay, here's what it said. If our gospel be hid, which is what the temptation is, of Christ, the whole process, it is hid to them that are lost in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. That's said believe in God. Demons believe in God. Demons acknowledge Christ. It's not the issue. Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus, the Lord, and ourselves your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is Paul speaking now. Long time after he... This is some 25 or 28 years after he was a believer. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. And of course, mortal just means dead. So then death work in us, worketh in us, but life in you. We having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believe, therefore have I spoken, we also believe, and therefore speak. Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus, and shall present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, I want you to visualize something. I mean, we, we've talked about it before, but can you imagine Jesus be con being concerned about his career? Can you imagine the response of some of the people from Jerusalem or the businessmen and entrepreneurs or however you pronounce that word? 
they're walking outside of Jerusalem, and Jesus is sitting with the disciples under a tree. He says, what do you guys do? Can you imagine Paul being concerned with his retirement program? Or with his salary? Or with a place to live? Or not to live? See, we go through these processes. And they're all self-centered. Oh, God is doing, God is working in this in me. Or God is showing me this. God isn't showing you a friggin' thing. If you're still in that dimension, you're still of those who are continuing with the world's temptation. You still are operating in the mind of a Gentile. Now, began tonight to be of those that continue with him in his temptation. His temptation is what happens when you abandon yourself. That's the offering up of Isaac. He's not concerned with you learning anything. He's not concerned with showing you a friggin' thing. He's concerned with you abandoning self, i.e. offering up Isaac as Abraham did, and then walking. And then the temptation of Christ is manifested automatically and the process is inexorable. It can't be stopped. Otherwise, you're just putting a Christian overlay onto the things of Adam. And I don't care if it's groves. I don't care if it's anything. You're not going to become better people. Do you understand a little bit of what offering up Isaac means? Seven consecrations. First, get out of your country. What does that mean? <coughs> what does it mean to, to leave? You're in the world, but not of it. There's not... There's no value system, there's no political system, there's no organizational system, there's no political system in the world, philosophical system, of any age, good or bad, that has any hold on you. That's what it means to leave your land. Then you leave your kindred, the family of the flesh. But every element in the land, every element in the kindred will try to tie, they'll try to lasso you. The reason that Jesus said that you must hate your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, yea, in your own life also, so that you can no longer see them after the flesh, but you see them as brethren. If you see them as mother, or as father, or as sister, or as brother, in knowledge you will hate that.
Now, do you understand? Most people that go by the name of Jesus have never left their land. They've still, all they've done is put a Christian overlay on top of all the idolatry in their land. So in the spirit, symbolically, they've become of Abraham, and Abraham is still back in Babylon in Nimrod's court. And they get all excited. Praise the Lord. God didn't even see them. The only place you're seen of God is on Mount Moriah. And there's only one Mount Moriah, and it's here. It's the point at which you offer your life without reservation. No aces in the hole. Leave your land. Leave your kindred. This is the, the seven consecrations. Let's go again. Then you have you have to at some point make us with this hunk of protoplasm and whatever we call it, you have to assent to follow God no matter what the cost. And that means it doesn't matter if if only makes me madder than hell. It doesn't matter if this person in this body I hate and I can't stand them. It doesn't matter if, if the worst sin that you can imagine takes place in your environment. You have said, because you have seen the vanity of everything else, I commit to follow God no matter what the cost. And you have to begin, then the process begins of separating yourself from Lot. Possessions, riches. But possessions still hang in there. I, are, anything that you possess, ideas, opinions, judgments, value systems. I mean, this, the other stuff is child's play, the material stuff. And you separate, the separation of lot is inexorable if you're on this process. Then you totally give up plans for Ishmael. Who's Ishmael? Harry, Beth, Pete, Linda, Jan. He's the child of the natural, not the child of the promise. It's you after the flesh. Giving up plans for Ishmael is one thing, but casting Ishmael out and casting the bondwoman out is another, because now it's religious, because you've been studying in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is always the type of Hagar, the Mount Sinai. So you got all these little rules. I can't do this. i got to do this. I should do this. I shouldn't do this. You should do this. You shouldn't do this because this is what will make God happy. Now you put God on it. See, after Ishmael, then you put God stuff on it. So finally you come to the point where you cast out the bondwoman and her son. And then finally you offer up Isaac. 
Yeah. Claudio met with casting out the bondwoman and her son. Read Galatians 4. Go to Galatians 4.19. I mean, it's like last week I was understanding it perfectly and now it's... Okay, Galatians 4. But see, these are the seven things that Abraham has done. Now, what it means to be... The bondwoman is always connected with law. Human race loves law. You love law. Right. You say you don't like it. There's a thousand things that you like about the law. Let's see what it says about it. Tell me, verse 21. Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid and the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, or by the agency of the flesh. But he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory? For these are the two covenants, the one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Hagar, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. Now the meaning of this is that wherever you find law, that's your Jerusalem. You understand that? Not that last statement. I understand. I was sort of piecing together that we've cast out the bondwoman, so we're casting out the law, but that's not right, is it? The word divorce and the word cast off mean the same. You've been divorced from the law because you're dead. All this is a simpler, deeper meaning of the cross, but you still hang on to the law. You still hang on, hang on to the laws, all of the things we've talked about. Reward, punishment, cause and effect. You know, you still think that if you have a problem, then you will sit down. If there's something that's troubling you, the first thing you do is you sit down and calculate how to fix it. Now, that is Jerusalem, which now is and is of the bondwoman. Do you understand that? I don't care. I don't care what it is. You have a need. And so you sit down and you calculate how to meet that need. And in that calculated process, you consume the leaven of Herod. And as, the, as you consume it, then you automatically are partaker of the Jerusalem, which now is. That becomes your Jerusalem, the place where the law is given. So there's a jillion other implications of it. But the primary thing is, is that you still continually calculate without God. 
That's the meaning of you're still under the law. The child of the promise, all that the child of the promise does in his, if, if, the, if there's an apparent need, or a, all he does is he pulls himself away from it and creates the vacuum that it has to be met by the father with no effort on his part because all things are given to the child of the promise freely. And you trust to the point of death. That's the meaning of faith. The child of the law sits down and he makes Jesus, or God, the chief among many gods. And he says, therefore, okay, now God bless this activity of the law. I'm going to take action one, two, and three. Now you bless it. It's hard to pull yourself out and create a vacuum <laughs> and all that shit. Okay. In the midst of your child overflowing, so to speak. Right. So to speak, if you want to get just under gritty. That's why, again, the child of the law always operates in cause and effect. He always, op Ishmael, always operates in cause and effect. If you have a problem, then these are the steps I'm going to take to fix it. If you have, if you have a need, then these are the steps I'm going to take to meet it. That's the law! What does the child of the promise do? The child of the promise has the faith as a grain of mustard seed, and even to the extent if he needs that mountain removed, he says, go into the sea. And the mountain jumps. Because the mustard seed knows it's a mustard seed, and the child of the promise knows it's a child of the promise. He only sees God. Now that's what happens after the offering up of Isaac. None of this will make any sense until Isaac is offered up. This makes you a little nervous. Because all of a sudden you begin to understand that to, to take this walk costs you everything. It makes me want to giggle. It makes me want to laugh. Me it makes me laugh. Okay. <laughs> okay, we could put it. We could make a bumper sticker about it. <laughs> put it on our forehead. Let's put it. We'll put it in a box on our hands. Well, it's the thing. The thing that gets me, or got me, when you said it, and why I want to giggle, is it. I mean, it's just, it's so true. The moment I perceive a problem, all my life I've been taught and rewarded. For immediately starting to figure out how to solve it. For cause and effect. And, yeah. And, I mean, I've heard you say this a couple thousand times, but tonight it just really makes me want to giggle. <laughs> today, my father said to me, what does he do? Right? And the moment he said that, and then I heard you say, and you said what I thought. I mean, the, just in the same line there. 
And the moment you said it, I just had to start laughing again. What do you do? What is he doing? Amen. Uh, well. Then you know you have to be Let's go to First Corinthians. So, was part of the temptation of Christ was it, was he tempted to calculate? Oh yeah. So you, you he, remember Proverbs three says. Before we go to First Corinthians, go to Proverbs three. <laughs> Because it's the kids' book. Proverbs is what the only reason the proverbs are in the scriptures is what the children were taught at beginning at age seven. <coughs> None of you are old enough yet. <laughs> proverbs three, verse five: Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, he shall direct thy paths. That's what it that's what everything I've just said said a little short sentence right there. It says it a whole lot better than I did. Quicker. I think I'm just starting to see something. You always say this thing about you can't what is it, you can't describe the sea if you're in it or something. Right. All my all my life up until this point. I've been calculating and figuring on cause and effect. <laughs> okay. So that that's that's doing, that's being what Christ was tempted to be. Right. You can't understand the temptation of Christ until you stop doing that. Amen. Oh, okay. <laughs> because otherwise you'll still think that the temptation of Christ is somehow connected with the temptation of man. So once all you have to do is is step over for one second out of cause and yeah. effect, out of calculating, and suddenly you can look back and see that there's the right. That's why you're a fisher. That's why Christ is, he means it's fish. We have to pull the men out of the, you have to put, pull a fish out of the sea before they can look back at the sea. He means it's so fishers little, of men. So it's a little silly for us, for me, to be trying to pull somebody out of the sea when I'm in the sea. Oh, yeah. That's, that, that. <laughs> well, no wonder I haven't been able to explain anything to anybody. Same <laughs> Okay. Okay. First Corinthians, chapter one. No, that's not right. Chapter three. <coughs> chapter three, verse sixteen. Know you not that you are the temple of God? You can't know any of this stuff until you know that God himself incarnate dwells within you. Examine yourself. Prove that you're in the faith. Know you not that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobate. Now, for a lot of you, you've been, you know, you've been here forever, so it seems like, and you've heard me say that a thousand times, ten thousand times, but you don't know it. Know ye not. Epignosis. It means to be totally mixed. It means knowledge isn't knowing truth. Knowledge is being truth. 
Know ye not that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates. Once that permeates your entire being, then everything else is child's play. Because he already did it. You just, you just sort of... Okay. Know ye not that you are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Now what does it mean to defile the temple? I don't know. I don't know what reprobate is. What is reprobate? Incapable of, being, of, of turning from self. That's what it's What does it mean to defile a temple? Smoking. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Having sex with the doggy. Yeah. Masturbating. Having sex with the doggy. Having sex with the doggy. Yeah, that's pretty rough. That's pretty sick, Jan. Using handcuffs. No. No. None of that means it. Remember the temple. The temple was made up of the court of the Gentiles, which is the court of the world, then the court of women, then the court of priests like the court of Israel, then the court of priests, then the holy place, then the holy of holies. There's only one way to defile the temple. To get in the holy place, the holy of holies. To do something in the holy of holies. Now what Titus did, he put swine's blood on the holy of holies. Except before he put the swine's blood, what he allegedly did is he took two scrolls of the law, laid it across the ark, and had sex with three prostitutes at the same time to prove that the Jewish concept of the power of God being in the Holy of Holies was a fable. And he defied, he defied God. Okay, destroy me now. Well, God didn't destroy him then because the game was over. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's like a guy from the St. Louis Cardinals going out tonight in Texas Stadium and, 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 and hitting a home run. That's a good one. I mean, it's a football game because it hits home run and says, Aha, Dallas Cowboys, I just beat you. The game was over at the cross. When Titus destroyed the temple, it was playing baseball three days after the football game. Now it's a new game. The moment the day of Pentecost came, you became the temple. The human race did. All I can tell you is you don't have to worry about knowing how to defile a temple. That's like worrying about what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. You're, not, you're so far from being able to do that, you don't even have to think about it. I promise you that the physical activity in the outside of your body does not defile the temple. So let's leave it at that for a moment. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool, that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written... He taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. Therefore, let no man glory in men. Why? 
for all things are yours. Now, if, you, if they belong to you, by definition they belong to you not by the right of or the process of cause and effect or effort expended, but by the right of kingship or the right of being the lawful heir. And they are given to you all things with absolutely no effort on your part. The only question is, do you have the courage to test it? All things. That's the fruit of offering up Isaac. And all things are yours. Now, it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Then he gives you all things freely. And, you know, then that, <coughs> then that kind of is like Satan trying, taking Christ up to the top of the, of the church and saying, I'll give you this. But that same yeah, thing same is thing. a different game on the... Yeah. Let's take a break, because that's enough about offering up Isaac. Does everybody understand it? You understand why, again, as we, as we do this, as we learn more and more about it, we see that Abraham was indeed the perfect Christian. He was the model. Paul said he's the model of faith, the father of all believers. Faith in faith. Okay. I'm getting. And they came to the place, verse 9, and they came to the place with God, which God had told of love, and Abraham built an altar there. And laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Altar is an interesting word because in the modern... Uh, stuff there's you know there's an altar in front of the church and come on down to the altar and you know a lot of the charismatic churches teach you to build an altar in your house so you can pray there the word altar is the hebrew word mizbeach or mizbiak depending on how you if you know how to speak hebrew but the word altar has one meaning place of slaughter. They don't want to go build them in your house. It's a place of slaughter. I can't even say slaughter and not sacrifice because it's well, confusing between sacrifice can sometimes sacrifice can be a nice word. Yeah, okay. That's why it says the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. The word two-edged sword there is the Greek word, and I forgot the exact word, but it's the Greek word for sacrificial knife. It's the place of slaughter. So don't be surprised if you come here and you feel like you've been slaughtered. That's the intent. 
goes to the point of soul and spirit, joint, separating the marrow from the bones, to the innermost thoughts and intents. Slaughter. Cutting even to the point of cutting the bones open to reveal the marrow. Knowing this, that in the, as, well, as we'll see in a minute. He stretched forth his hand to slay the lad, to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called on him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. There's all kinds of interesting. There's only, there's only, there's 11 times in the scripture where it's a double, where God uses your name twice. Only two places? 11. So by this time, Isaac, he, I mean, uh, he knows that he's laying. Yeah, a couple of them are to Abraham. Twice. Abraham, Abraham, Jacob, Jacob, Moses, Moses, Samuel, Samuel, but it means uh, when it's a double calling, uh, he really got your attention. <laughs> and he says, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thine son, thy son, thine only son, from me. Now, Somebody go to uh, Genesis 18, verse 19. Read it, Harry. God confirmed something here. What he said in Genesis 18, 19. For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. Okay. God confirmed here what he said there about Abraham. But it had to be brought to completion by Abraham remaining under the test. Even the ultimate test of a knife ready to go down into the promise. <coughs> now to go to Colossians 2.10. <coughs> is the head of all principality and power, in whom also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Oh, that's not... You see, the same thing he did in Isaac, and he did in Christ, he's done in you. Once you recognize <laughs> that you are offering Isaac, when you're offering the promise, you're no more chasing, you mean, you're, you, you, 
You've gone through those seven levels of consecration. It's a process. So don't be, don't get yourself bent out of shape if you're not there yet. If you, if you see you're not, don't worry about it. Turn from self. Don't worry. Don't 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 let your mind give you the luxury of oh my God, oh poor me. Just turn from self. Now, there's another word there. It's, it says where he took, he bound the sacrifice. Oh, that's part of the halal. It says bind the sacrifice tightly to the horns of the altar. When you read that, you're asking God, knowing that. You will flinch when the knife comes. You're simply saying, God, bind me tightly to the altar. Amen? Okay, now, in the great argument about faith and works, now that all people have, well, what's faith without works? James says the offering of Isaac was the work of faith. It's not, not, not about being an evangelist or being doing stuff in the world. The work of faith is the offering of Isaac. Let me, I'll just read it. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he have faith and have not works? Can faith save him? For brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say to him, unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith. See, giving them something had nothing to do with faith. It had nothing to do with works. It has, it has to do with fruit of being a believer. Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee by faith, by my works. But thou believest there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac, his son, on the altar. Seest thou how faith wrought with his work, and by his work was faith made perfect. You understand the work of faith now? The work of faith is not a plan. The work of faith is offering the promise. In other words, the abandonment of self. Alright, let's go to 14. Verse 14. This is a biggie. <clears throat> well, in verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it, offered it up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called that the name of that place, Jehovah Jireh, as is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Jehovah Jireh is one of the 16 titles of God. 16 titles of Jehovah. Jireh means the Lord will provide. Now, the interesting thing 
It's easy and it's cheap. It's cheap grace to run around thinking, and even it's, love, it's fun to say, oh, the Lord will provide. The Lord is providing by the means of my work. The Lord is providing by all the other things. You know, I mean, obviously, that's true. The Lord is providing everything. But God demands, the, in Jehovah Jireh doesn't just mean the Lord will provide, it means the Lord will provide in the face of nothing else, or, or with no competition. Now the Talmud says that this lamb, he looked up and he saw the lamb, or the ram, and Abraham went over and said, praise God! I got a sacrifice. I got a burnt offering. You remember the burnt offering is the highest order of the offering, so it typifies all of the offerings in Leviticus. It's the offering of acceptance, the sweet savor offering, where everything is consumed on the altar. There's nothing burned outside the camp. Okay, so Abraham goes over and is going to going to grab the ram. As soon as he gets his arms around him, the ram gets out of the thicket and butts him and runs away. Then he goes a few feet and gets caught in another thicket. And the same process is repeated several times. Well, the interesting part about that is, is, is that this is, you know, this is the bride. You know, she, she, she always uh, is going to go apostate. But eventually... The sacrifice is bound tightly to the horns of the altar. Okay? But think of it. Think of what it means to say the Lord will provide. It means that if the Lord doesn't provide, I will die. You can't get by with the cheap grace theology that says, well, you know, I'm working real hard, but the Lord's providing it, you know, or here it was a total, it was something out of nothing. But you remember what I've told you before? This is the seventh point of the consecration of Abraham. If you start this process and you say you're going to wait on God and the Lord will provide, if you did that today, most of you would die. Because you're waiting on God with the mind of a Gentile. You understand that? Yeah. We talked about that. I never quite understood exactly what the mind of Gentile is. <clears throat> the mind of the Gentile cares. Okay. <coughs> the mind of the Gentile defines what God is going to do. What he should do or what God is going to do. Right. Know you know that Christ is in you. Well, I know, but my point is you don't really believe it. You don't know it. Okay. If you really knew it, you'd never again calculate. Yeah. You'd never again have a need, and therefore I say one, two, three steps, one, two, three, four, five, and then it'll meet that need. So the mind of the Gentile says God will provide and then sort of let monitors me, his let progress. Me help right, and helps him out. He sees how he's doing well, it. Well, effectively. Figures out how he's doing it and yeah, talks the, about it a lot. Right. The mind of the Gentile says and believes it implicitly with every muscle and nerve and fiber. God helps those that help themselves. 
And also, oh, King of Dawn, I guess, defines how God is supposed to How God's supposed to do it. I've done that. <laughs> <laughs> well, God, damn it, you're back. And keeps looking to see if he's done it yet. Yeah. Rather than just let it go. No. I do that all the time. I'm like, I feel like it's a little kid waiting for Santa Claus behind the couch. And he keeps looking to see if, if, if Santa Claus came and put stuff in the vacuum cleaner. Yeah. That's kind of the same mentality. He's like, a supia. Well, there's another mystery that's locked in here. The name of this place of sacrifice is Jehovah Jireh. He called the name, he called the place Jehovah Jireh. He called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh. Do you understand? There's no way in hell that you're going to offer yourself a living sacrifice until you know that the name of the place is Jehovah Jireh. You might hope it is. You might think it is. You might say maybe it is, or maybe it is for somebody else. But until you know that the place, the name of that place, which is now no longer in, I mean, it's, it's here. It's the one altar in the New Jerusalem. The name of that place is Jehovah Jireh. Okay. Let's go to Second Timothy one twelve. So that's sort of like the thing about if you can't step off the highway, then wherever you step, the highway is. This sort of implies that that wherever the sacrifice is offered, it is that place. Well, there's only one. That's because remember, New Jerusalem is the only. It's the only reality. All this stuff we we judge. We look not at the things which are seen. But the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are carnal. The things which are unseen are, are spirit. We are only concerned. We're, the end of physical activity was the cross. There's no more physical activity. There's no more thing. I mean, it's only seeing. Now, the word Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will do it or provide, it's, it's the same thing as the, comes from the Hebrew word Ra, which means to see. The Lord will see to it. And that takes place on Mount Moriah, the place that you're seen of Yahweh. Moriah means seen of Yahweh. I mean, it's all connected. The Lord providing and the Lord seeing and the Lord doing, all those things are connected with this concept of seeing. As you see him, you shall be like him. And he sees you on Mount Moriah. Okay, 2 Timothy 1.12. Somebody read it. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Amen. Sounds like, sound like we should sing it. And I, you can, can you? I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Then in, in, in Second Thessalonians or whatever it is, it says, The Lord will will it and do it in you. Okay? Now verse 15. Back to Genesis 22. What? That day. You didn't say keep our fingers. What day? 
The eighth day, the one day, the only day. Just testing. Okay. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time, and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord. That's interesting. And it says, again, remember this just like it was in Genesis 18? Except there were three angels, and it went sometimes singular, sometimes plural. Here it says, the angel called. And then the angel said, By myself I have sworn, saith the Lord. Well, this drives Hebrew targumists and Talmud, this, this Talmud scholar, these Talmud guys wild. The reason is that the angel of the Lord is Jesus Christ. Always has been. Every time you see the angel in the Old Testament, it's Jesus. Actually, it's the Christ. It's the Messiah. So, and he said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing will I bless thee, in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Now, the seed is singular. You know, you've heard me say it a thousand times in Galatians 3.16. The promises of God go not to the seeds as of many, but to the one seed, which is Christ. Every religion, every monotheistic religion in the world is based on the promises of God to Abraham. And everybody thinks they went to them. And all of us are wrong. The promises of God go only to the seed. Now notice, I want you to believe, how many times have we seen in Genesis that he said that the seed of Abraham shall be as numerous as the stars of the heavens and as the sand of the seashore. Now, either God believes in hyperbole or he was telling us something. Because there's no way in hell. Do you know how many, do you know how many stars there are? It's 10 million to the 10th power. That's how many known stars. That's billions and billions, hundreds of billions of stars. There's never been that many Israelis. Even if you counted every one, there wouldn't be there'd be there wouldn't be a hundred million. Well, if you count all the people. Hear me. It's not even if you count all the people, there wouldn't be that many. The only way it is is if you count all the sperm cells that have ever been released by any man on the face of the earth then it would, because in every one of them is the potential for the seed of Christ. That's what happened in Pentecost. And in that, it's as numerous as the stars of the sky or as the sand of the sea. That's, I mean, it took me a, a I mean, you know, when I said the human race was God's sperm cells, that wasn't an easy thing to say the first time I said it. But when you, I mean, this is one of the main reasons. I mean, there's many others, but, and, and, and the God is only concerned with a sperm cell 
that turns, that enters the new Jerusalem, the womb, the egg. <coughs> Just as the man here is only, you know, you're only concerned with a sperm cell that's joined with an egg and becomes a child. God no more gives a flip about the human race than he cares of, than you care about the sperm cells you've shed all over the place. You care about the one that has entered the egg and has become a child of God, a child of promise or child. So God cares about the human that has entered the new Jerusalem, which is the female egg. Okay? That's enough. <coughs> well, then verse 19. So Abraham returned unto his young men. And I told you those young men, one of the, one of the ancient Targumists said the young men was, the young men were Ish, Eliezer and Ishmael. They all returned to Beersheba in the land of the Philistines. Now, I told you last week that, that Beersheba was outside of the promised land. It's not true. It wasn't much of the time, but in Abraham's, Beersheba was the southern, southernmost um, city of Judah. Abraham and Isaac dug wells there, and, and we have many, many theophanies where God visit positions there. Abraham, Hagar, Isaac, Jacob, Elijah all saw God there. Now, and, there, and, and God, Abraham, and these other guys built altars there. They built high places there. And that was fine. Until the temple was fully dedicated. Then the high places that were there couldn't worship there anymore. Just as in your case, you've got all the high places. But as soon as the temple is fully dedicated, you can't give them breath anymore. Well, I told you that one of the, uh, something I didn't tell you that, um, Talmud says that Isaac spent the next three years in paradise studying Torah. Now, of course, the Gospel of St. Thomas says in that Jesus said, raise the stone and you shall find me. Cleave the wood and I shall be there. He's talking about Isaac carrying the wood for his own sacrifice. Well, that's enough. Let's do the one reading now. The reading is Isaiah 33, the prophets for this section. Our Isaiah 33, um, verse 7, 2 something. Yeah, Isaiah 33, 7 to 22. Behold, their valiant ones shall cry without. The ambassadors of peace shall weep bitterly. The highways lie waste, the wayfaring man ceaseth. He hath broken the covenant, he hath despised the cities, he regardeth no man. The earth mourneth and languisheth, Lebanon is ashamed and hewn down, Sharon is like a wilderness, and Basham and Carmel shake off their fruits. 
Now, by the time we finish the three-year cycle, we'll know what each one of those things symbolize. Lebanon, Barsham, Carmel, Sharon. Okay, the point of it is, the picture of those three verses is desolation. Nothing after the flesh. Those were the most beautiful places in Israel, Carmel and Sharon. Now, they're all, it says they're gone. And then it says, now shall I arise, saith the Lord. Now will I be exalted. Now will I lift up myself. Same thing happened in Isaac. When it's desolate, when no hope, when everything is gone, and Isaac is on the altar, and the knife is coming down, now will I lift up myself. When Christ after the flesh is gone, when he's hung on the cross, when he's been buried for three days, now will I lift up myself. The same in you. When you have come to the end, when all of the topology that's here, your strengths, your beauty has gone, and you see no hope, then he will lift himself up in you with no effort on your part. You shall conceive chaff. That's all you've done all your life. Whatever you've done, think about it. It's been chaff. It's blown in the wind. You shall bring forth stubble. Your breath as fire shall devour you. Interesting And the people shall be as the burning of lime, as thorns cut up shall it be burned in the fire. Hear, ye that are far off, what I have done, and ye that are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid, fearfulness, fearfulness hath surprised the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell in the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burning? He that walketh uprightly, or walketh righteously, and speaketh uprightly. He that despiseth the gain of the oppressions, that shaketh his hands from holding of bribes, that stoppeth his ears from the hearing of blood, and shutteth his eyes from the seeing of evil. He shall dwell on high. The place of defense shall be the munitions of rocks. Bread shall be given him as water shall be sure. Thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty. They shall behold the land that is a very far off. I mean, all this is what happens. This is Christ. This isn't you. Thine heart shall meditate terror. Where is the scribe? Where is the receiver? Where is he that counted the towers? Thou shalt not see a fierce people, a people of a deeper speech than thou canst perceive, of a stammering tongue that thou canst understand. Look upon Zion, the city of our solemnities. Thine eyes shall see Jerusalem, a quiet habitation, a tabernacle that shall not be taken down. Not one of the stakes thereof shall ever be removed, neither shall any of the cords thereof ever be broken. Now, if anybody ever gets in a discussion with you about whether or not the Hal Lindsey bullshit is true about that place of the natural, this is the definition of the true Jerusalem. Look upon Zion, the city of our solemnities. And the only way you can look upon it is to see through that which is natural. And to see the new Jerusalem surrounding us now. Look upon Zion, the city of our solemnities. Thine eyes shall see Jerusalem, a quiet habitation, a tabernacle that shall not be taken down. Not one of the stakes thereof shall ever be removed. 
neither shall any of the cords thereof be broken. But there the glorious Lord will be unto us a place of broad rivers and streams. Therein shall go no galley with oars, neither shall gallant ships pass by, pass thereby. The reason is, there's, you know why no oars are on it? Because oars are effort. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. Now, in Revelation, thy tacklings are loosed. They could not well strengthen their mast. They could not spread the sail. Then is the prey of a great spoil divided. The lame take the prey. And the inhabitants shall not say, I am sick. The people that dwell therein shall be forgiven their iniquity. It's the only place there is to live right now. That's not, this isn't going to happen someday. Unless you know you're there now, you never will be. This is the same place that, that Abraham saw when he, he walked up and he, he says he, he lifted up his eyes and looked and there he saw Mount Moriah. He saw the new Jerusalem. Now I challenge you wherever you are because that new Jerusalem, that reality is the only, that it's, it's always over us. It's always here. And you always have the temptation to judge after the flesh, after the carnal, or to see the new Jerusalem. That's enough. I quit. Somehow, the altar, the place on that, that wood is piled where Isaac is laid, somehow the altar and the mercy seat come together somehow, but I don't see how. It's like I'm thinking that that, that, that same place that's, that's the altar of sacrifice has also got to be the mercy seat. Uh, don't get ahead of yourself. We'll do that when we get to the tabernacle. You'll see that. <coughs> Everybody understand perfectly. Well, you know, let me, this is important. So I'm going to say it again. There are seven things, the seven consecrations of Abraham. He first had to leave his land Next, he had to leave his kindred. Next, he had to commit to follow only God. Next, he had to separate from his riches. Then he had to give up plans for the natural self, for Ishmael. Then he had to cast out, totally divorce Hagar and Ishmael. And finally, he had to offer up Isaac. And those are the seven, that seven being the mystical completeness. That's, that's what has to happen in us. And each one of the people in the group are at a varying stage of one of those seven. But the process is inexorable. But I want you to be able to taste the joy. You're the most fortunate of any person that has ever existed. Mm -hmm. And to begin to taste and feed on that instead of the other and neglecting the past by neglecting it, it will be gone. I mean, you're not the only one that, you know, everybody is in one of those positions. Amen? Anybody have anything else? Take it, big guy. Teach us what it means to offer up Isaac.